How are we all doing? Good. Well, as I said earlier, we are starting our brand new series this morning called In the Meantime. And over the next couple of weeks, we're really going to seek to answer that question that you just saw posed in the video. And the question is this, what do you do when there's nothing that you can do? You see, all of us, we have certain situations or circumstances in our life that are placed before us that we have absolutely no control over. So in those moments, what do you do when there's nothing you can do? You see, we all have different problems in our lives that we can take care of, but they're also unresolvable problems. Sometimes there are tensions in our lives, but they're also unresolvable tensions. So when these situations or these moments or these seasons of life or these trips, whatever it may be, when they come up in your life, how do you deal with it? What do you do when there's absolutely nothing that you can do? And for some of us, it may be relationally where you're in a marriage or you're in a relationship where things aren't going great and you want it your way, they want it their way, neither of you can agree, but you don't want to change and they don't want to change. You don't want to get divorced, you don't want to break up, so you go into the future, you go forward saying, it just is what it is. I'm just going to deal with it as it is and just let it be. For some of us, maybe it's with, or for some of you, maybe it's with your kids, whereas you're growing them up and you're, you're raising them and you're training them and you're trying to impart in them good life lessons and values, and you're teaching them the heart of the matter, saying this is what you need to do to succeed, to grow and to be successful, and you're teaching them the importance of grades. Grades are good. Grades are good. And then it comes senior year of high school, and they look at the report card and say, oh man, grades really are good, Ugh. right? It's going to affect the college that I go to. And then they start hanging out with different groups of people and then they get married or they get engaged, they get married and they start a family and then you've got in-laws that you never wanted in the first place, right? What do you do when there's nothing you can do in all these situations? Maybe it's financially. Maybe your financial dreams aren't coming true or no longer can come true. What do you do when it's beyond your control? Maybe for some of you it's regarding your health. Maybe you're not going to die from whatever it is the doctors have diagnosed you with, but they can treat it, they just can't cure it. And this has become the new normalcy of your life. This has become your new reality where you just have to accept it. It is what it is. And in the meantime, I just need to keep moving forward. You see, all of us in our lives, we have these in the meantime moments. Whether it be a season or a specific moment or a, a trail of events, all of us come face to face with moments in our lives where we have to say, what do I do? How do I respond to this? What am I supposed to do? And you know, sometimes we're not looking for a solution because we realize there is no solution. Nothing we can do can present a solution. There may be some options, but it seems that each option we take only makes things even worse for us in the first place. So we don't know what to do. We could go this way, but it's going to get worse. Could go this way, it's going to get worse. So just in the meantime, it is what it is. And we just kind of let it go. What do you do? What's the answer to all this? And you think there's a lot of internal struggle and internal battles that come up in moments like this, where we start to look around and we see other people's wrinkle-free lives, right? And we start to judge. We start to feel negative about ourselves and we see all this going on. We think that's the life that I was supposed to have. And it's easy for us to get angry. It's easy for us to get resentful. And it's easy for us to start to compare. 
And this even happens within the context of the church and Christians. Now, I love Christians, but it happens here too, right? You're sitting there and you're talking with people and like, you know what, Matt? God totally, totally answered my prayer. And sometimes there are just silly things that people say that you just want to slug in the church, right? You all have been there before, but they say, you know what, Matt? God totally answered my prayer. Yeah, what was your prayer? So I lost my car keys. And it's like all emotion just drains from your face. Seriously, like this is your prayer. Just listen, right? I lost, I lost my keys. You know, and I, I prayed and I fasted for hours upon hours. You know, I even gave up Starbucks for an hour, whatever it may be, Matt. And I just focused and I prayed that God would show me where these keys were. And as I was praying, you know, my husband came home and he came home early. He's so good, but he came home, right? And he opened the door and I heard the keys jingle and they were in the front door all along. And praise God for answering my prayer. And you're just like, I hate you. I don't want to be in your C group anymore. Just get out of my face, right? You're like, you don't know what a real problem is. You wouldn't know a problem if it was right in front of your face. Let me tell you about my life. You see, when we start to compare ourselves to others, you've got this wrinkle-free, blemish-free life that seems to be so perfect in comparison to my life. Because we're all in this in-the-meantime moment where we don't know what to do. We don't know what to say. You see, all of us, we have this perfect picture of how we view life should be, whether it be romantically or relationally or financially, whatever it may be, we all have this view of how we expect our lives to go, of how we think that it should be. And when we look at these selves and we find ourselves in the set of circumstances and things just aren't going to be that way, what do you do when there's nothing that you can do? When this picture you have of the perfect life isn't and can't come true anymore? How do you respond to that? And just about everyone else around you constantly reminds you about this unintentionally, but their smiles and, you know, their, their outfits or their children, their invitations, their graduations, their trips, their cars, their houses, whatever it may be. There's all these things that we look out in our life. We say, that's what I want. That's what I deserve to have. And we start comparing. We start looking at other people in this way, and it creates this resentment. And so we just kind of give up hope. We say, you know what? It is what it is. Nothing's ever going to be better. And we start to draw some conclusions when we come to this point in our life. And we start to tell ourselves a couple of lies. And these lies, we tell ourselves so frequently and so often that we start to believe them. You know what these lies are? I have them marked down on your outline. So you look at your outlines real quick. There are three of them that we focus on. The first one is this. The first lie that we tell ourselves in this dark time of our life is that I will never be happy again. I'm in this meantime moment, and it's just everything seems dark around me. I'm never going to be happy again. You know, I long for the days of high school. I long for the days of junior high when my parents paid for everything, where they did everything, right? No bills. It was just freedom. I could do whatever I wanted to do. I long for the days of when I was in the first year of my marriage, or the first year of being a parent, or the first year of getting to know that special loved one for the first time. I long for that moment because when I look at my life now, something's missing and I'm never going to be happy again. And this is the lie that we tell ourselves. And then once you start telling yourself that lie, the next lie starts to come into play. And the next lie is that nothing good can come from this. Where you say, you know what, Matt, or whatever pastor's up on stage, don't stand up there and tell me some sappy story about a guy in scripture who's going through a tough time, and then Jesus comes down and saves them and heals them, and they all live happily ever after, because that's not my story. 
That's not my life. Nothing good can come from what I'm currently going through. I'm stuck in this in the meantime moment with no end in sight, no rescue, no help. Nothing good is going to come from my life. I'm never going to be happy again. And then when you have these two, the third one automatically follows very shortly after. And the third one is this. It's that there really is no point in continuing on. There's no point in fighting anymore. There's no point in working things out in this marriage or in this friendship or in this business endeavor. You know what? There's not even a point of living anymore. Because what's the point? I'm never going to be happy. Nothing good's going to come from my life. I see myself as a failure in everything that I do. So in the meantime moment, you start to berate yourself. You start to tear yourself down and it starts to take its toll. And we sit back and we think, what do I do when I'm in this moment? What do you do when there's nothing you can do? So for the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about this super happy topic, right? Yeah. In the meantime moments of our life, what do you do when there's absolutely nothing that you can do? Now, as a pastor, I have the opportunity to have conversations with all different kinds of people. I know counselors and advisors do the same, and I'm a problem solver. I like solving problems. So when people come to me and I say, you know, Matt, this is what's going on in my life, I'll listen five, ten minutes, and I'll say, okay, here's what I think that you should do. And it's not because I'm some, you know, theologian or I'm some, like, deep psychic counselor or whatever it may be. It's just I hear your situation, and this is what I recommend that you do. This is what's worked for me, so in theory it should work for you too. But what's heartbreaking for me is that there are certain situations in life. There are certain encounters that you have in life where a person will sit down and they'll say, Matt, you know what? I don't want you to give me a solution. I don't want you to give me an answer because I know that one doesn't exist. I just want to vent. I just want somebody to hear what's going on in my life because I've already given up hope and I don't want to fight anymore. And these are heartbreaking moments in life. These are these in-the-meantime moments when you find yourself stranded on this island and you've given up all hope of rescue. What do you do in these moments? And in these moments at the epicenter of the crisis, at the epicenter of your emotions, especially for believers, there's a question that we start to ask that I'm going to revolve around today. And this question is, where is God? When I'm stranded, when I'm alone, when I feel that there's nothing that I can do, where is God? Isn't he supposed to help me? Isn't he supposed to provide for me? Isn't he supposed to take care of me? Where is my God? And we start asking more and more this question. But something that we need to know, and if this is the only thing that you take out of this entire message today, the most important thing that you can take away from this is this. This is the bottom line. God, he is not absent. God is not apathetic. And God is not angry with you. If you have your in-the-meantime moment when you're experiencing silence, when you can't hear the voice of God, or you don't feel his presence, it doesn't mean that he's left you. It doesn't mean he doesn't care about you, and it doesn't mean that he's angry with you. You see, his silence does not mean his absence. Same thing when it comes into apathy. God, he cares for you. It's not like he looks at your life and says, hey, you know, I'm the creator of the world. Who are you? What, what are you doing? Like, why would your problems inconvenience me? Like, have you seen the Middle East? It's messed up. Like, I'm going to deal with this, and then you can sit there, be quiet, and I'll come back to you when I'm ready. God doesn't do that. God says, I'm still going to pour into you because I'm not angry with you, because I love you, because I want to take care of you. I want to do all these things for you. And the reason I say this is because so many times when people start to think of this question of where is God, they start to turn around and say, well, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong or what did I do to deserve this? 
And it's in these moments we kind of go on this little personal witch hunt of our own lives. And we start breaking apart. In fact, some of you may be in church today because you're saying, I strayed from God and maybe, just maybe, I need to come back because, you know, God, I, I'm going to put some money in the offering play. I'm going to sing some songs. I'm going to, you know, dance in the aisles, whatever it may be. How can I get my luck back? How can I get back to where you want me to be? Because we've strayed so far. But you see, that's because people think that God's absent. God's not absent. He's not apathetic, and he's not angry with you. God's silence does not equate his absence in your life. Now, before we jump into the heart of this in-the-meantime moment, there's something that we need to explore about ourselves, something that's so vitally true for this, is that when everybody's in this in-the-meantime moment, when you feel like nothing can change, that nothing good can come of it, when we lift our eyes up and we start praying to heaven, but heaven is silent, and we start to listen, there's a little bit of hypocrisy that goes on. A little bit of hypocrisy. Because let me tell you what I know about each and every one of us. There is a day or a season of life or a night or a business trip or an incursion or out with friends, whatever it may be, where the presence of God is the furthest thing from your mind. doesn't matter what you're doing, the presence of God is just devoid from your life. And it happens to every single one of us. And we even have all kinds of theological gymnastics that we go through to justify this, right? We have this sin weekend that's planned. It's booked, it's reserved, and we're just ready to flat out go and sin. Or maybe I've got sin in the back seat and it's on ice just chilling. Or maybe I've got sin tucked underneath my seat hoping that the cops don't pull me over. Whatever it may be, each and every one of us, we justify something saying, you know what? God doesn't know me, so he wouldn't care, I hope you know what? God doesn't care about the little insignificant things that I do in my life, I hope. You know what? God doesn't know me. God doesn't care about my life. If I'm in this meantime moment, I haven't heard from God in so long, I'm just going to do whatever I want to do because it doesn't really matter. Nothing's going to make me happy anymore. Nothing good's going to come from my life. So let me just waste away my life. And we start to think down this path. And it's amazing because it's at this point that our conscience steps into play. And we all have this mom conscience that goes off in our head, right? It says, if you go to the right places, you'll meet the right people. Go to the right places, you'll meet the right people. And over time, it says, you know what, mom? I want to go to the wrong places because I want to meet the wrong people. So get out of my head. Because we want to go down this path. And the same thing happens when it comes to God. We know exactly how to shut out the voice of God in our life. And as we do that, we find ourselves even more stranded in our desert situations, in our island situations, in the meantime moments of our life. And we don't know what to do. But here's what's amazing. This is what we're going to focus on for the rest of this series, is that in spite of all of this, your heavenly Father still loves you. He still cares for you. And the reason I can say that with confidence is because of one of the most foundational scriptures in the Bible. And all of you know it is this. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. You know how I know God's not absent? You know how I know that God is not apathetic? You know how I know that God's not angry? It's because he took his son and he poured his anger out upon him on the cross. He gave his son to death so you and I could live. And if there's any question in your mind or in your heart that God doesn't know who you are, that God doesn't care about you, just look at what he did for you. His own son, he poured the wrath of death upon him so that you could live. That shows me that God is not silent even though I can't hear him. God is always present and God always cares even though I may feel that he's absent or he's apathetic. God is always invested in my life. He's always there. In my personal life, you know, I, there's a couple moments when I do have dark times. 
when I have times of doubt. And I don't want to be a pastor that comes up here and says, I'm going to sugarcoat everything for you. That it's us as pastors, we have beautiful lives. Everything's perfect and everything's going to grace. You know, it's, it's all great because that's not true for me. I have my dark moments. I have my moments of doubt. And it's in those moments that I ask myself a fundamental question. And this question has really radically changed my life. And I'm going to tell it to you in hopes that it helps you as well. The question I ask myself is, in this exact moment that I'm going through, can I find anybody else in scripture who has gone through something similar? Can I find just one person who God loved, who God poured his life into that is experiencing some kind of doubt or experiencing some kind of darkness in their own life? Because then if I find this person and I see how God responds, it shows me that I can be a Christ follower and still have doubt. I can be a Jesus follower and have moments or seasons of silence in my life, but still know that God cares for me. If there's just one person, maybe I'll find just a glimmer of hope that can keep me going on, that can keep pushing me through. And so as we're bringing all this in, I'm going to read to you guys a story from Scripture. I know it's taking me a little while to get here, but I'm going to read you guys a story from Scripture to show exactly what I mean by this. And this is a Scripture that most of you probably know if you've grown up in the church. And I'm not going to go fully into it. I'm not going to read the whole story. But what you need to know is that this is a story about a man that Jesus loved, a man that Jesus deeply cared for, but yet he still set him up for this in the meantime moment where he had to step back and say, God, what the heck? Where are you? God, what are you doing in my life? And this is a story about a man named John the Baptist. Now, most of you probably know this story. Some of you don't. But you can't really understand the significance of the story without a map. So I'm going to show you a map in just a couple minutes to kind of breach all this together. But one day, Jesus is teaching in Galilee. He's got his disciples sitting in front of him. He's equipping them. He's blessing them. He's getting ready to send them out. And he's just about to dismiss them to go out and make disciples. When a group of guys come forward and they walk in the room, and they say, Jesus, we are the disciples of John the Baptist. And we have a question from John for you that he likes us to ask you. And then once you give us your answer, we're going to go back and we're going to tell John what your answer is. So Jesus is like, okay, what's the question? And they say, John wants to know, are you the Messiah? Are you really Jesus? Are you really the one? Are you the one that I'm supposed to be following after? Now, for most of us, we look at this and say, well, if Jesus loved John and John loved Jesus, that should be an obvious answer. But even more than that, why doesn't John ask Jesus this question himself? Why did he have to send a group of people? Was he embarrassed? No, you know the reason why? Because John's in prison. You see, John had been preaching all up and down the Jordan River. And he's preaching in this, he's kind of taking some political shots at people that he shouldn't be. And in this region of the Jordan River, there's a man by the name of King Herod Antipas. And King Herod Antipas has a brother named Herod Philip. And everybody was named Herod back then because the first Herod just loved his own name. It was an ego thing. They even had a cousin or niece named Herodias. It was really weird, right? So everybody's named Herod. But King Herod Antipas is in rule of all of this realm. And he's got a brother named King, or Herod Philip. So Herod Philip ends up marrying his niece. Herodias. Now that's weird. We don't even do that in the South, right? That's just all kinds of awkward. So he marries his niece, and then after an extended period of time, he leaves for a long trip to Rome. And while he's gone in Rome, his brother, King Herod Antipas, comes in, sees Herodias, who's technically he's her uncle, she's the niece, and they have an affair. And things conspire, and when Herod Philip comes back, he finds out that they have married. This is all kinds of awkward. It's like, honey, uncle, what do I call you? I don't know. 
So this is all kinds of awkward, and this is a very interesting situation. See, there's no tabloids, there's no magazines, there's no TMZ during this time, but what this was is something that was directly difficult to understand and disturbing in this culture, especially in this culture. So John is preaching about sin and repentance in the land, and he's using this story of Herod Antipas and Herodias as his example. And King Herod actually thinks that it's pretty funny, but Herodias absolutely does not think it's funny. So she orders her husband, she asks her husband to have John the Baptist captured and thrown into prison. But not just into prison, into a dungeon in prison. But not just into any dungeon in prison. She says, I want you to send him to the easternmost part of our land, out to the sweltering heat of the desert, to the furthest reached palace that we own, and lock him in a dungeon there. And so John the Baptist is captured, and he's thrown in prison. And he's taken into this dungeon, and he's left there. And time goes by. Some more time goes by, some more times goes by, and John begins to have what each and every one of us have when nothing changes in our lives, doubts. You see, because John's been hearing about all the amazing things that Jesus has been doing, but why hasn't Jesus come to his rescue? Why hasn't Jesus intervened? Why hasn't Jesus stepped in to help? And here's the interesting thing is that we know John loved Jesus and that Jesus loved John. John the Baptist in an earlier story, he's baptizing people in the river Jordan, right? And Jesus walks up in the crowd and John stops everybody. He says, you have been following me, but this is the one that you want to follow. I'm not even worthy to tie his sandals. This is the lamb of God who has come to redeem the sins of the world. This is the Messiah, the one who can save you. He announces Jesus. And Jesus, in a story, he says of John, of all people born of woman, John, and this is huge, John is the greatest. He literally says, John is the greatest man on the face of the earth. How would you like it if Jesus said that about you? You are the greatest person on the face of this earth. See, there's this intimate relationship that the two of them have. They truly do love each other. But now John has been sitting in prison for about a year and a half, and he's thinking, why hasn't Jesus come to my rescue? If we're so close, if he loves me, if we have a family connection, why hasn't he intervened? Where is God? And so he has these guys come and ask Jesus. But what do you think Jesus did when he heard that John the Baptist was placed in prison? And we step back a little bit. This is before the guys actually come and talk to Jesus. But when you think about it, if Jesus truly did love John, what would you think his reaction would have been if he heard that his most beloved one, the greatest of all the earth, is stuck in a prison? What would he do? Would he maybe send him some help? Maybe send the disciples out there? Maybe try some miraculous rescue? Maybe send him some loaves of bread? Maybe some fish? Maybe bake him a cake? right? Maybe turn Herodias into a loaf of bread and feed her to the fish. He's a God of miracles. He can do whatever he wants, right? Who knows? You think that he would have done something to intervene, right? But no, when we read this story, this is what it says. It says that when Jesus hears this, he retreats from Galilee and he goes to live in a place called Capernaum. And you see, most of us, we just gloss over this story. We're like, okay, that's cool. And we keep reading. But this is why looking at a map is so crucially important as I wrap this up. So this is a map of the area, right? Jesus is up here preaching in Nazareth. And it's illustrated by this little red arrow, right? Jesus is up here preaching and teaching in Nazareth. And we said that John the Baptist has kind of been moving up and down the Jordan River as his ministry. So this is kind of roughly his area, give or take. But he's been preaching and teaching all up in this area. So when John is captured and he's thrown into prison, he's taken to a place called Machiris, which is down here, and the sweltering heat of the desert. And in this story, it says that when Jesus hears that John had been placed in prison, we would expect him to travel down to at least talk or get him out of prison somehow. 
But no, instead, what does it say? It says that Jesus retreats from Galilee and he goes to Capernaum. Jesus totally goes in the opposite direction. You see, I think this is so true for most of our lives that we're, when we are in the dark dungeon moments of our lives, we feel that Jesus moves in the opposite direction away from us. We say, God, what's going on? God, do you still love me? Do you still care for me? I don't understand this. Why would you do this? Why would you go this way? And it gets, the story gets worse though. You could get on a plane and you could fly down there and you could cross over the Jordan River, which is very difficult at this point in time, but you could cross over with some guards, maybe some guns at the cover of night, but you could get across and you could actually walk your way up to, um, up to the Parod's Palace at Machiris, right? So you could get up there and you could see, and since most of us won't go, here's a picture of what it looks like. This is the view from Herod's palace at Machiris. This is where John the Baptist most likely would have been placed in dungeon, right? It's beautiful in its own right. A little hot, kind of nothing out there, right? A little dusty. But John is stuck in this dungeon-like prison, sweltering heat in the darkness. Now, we understand that from the story, but when we read this part about Jesus going to Capernaum, we don't understand this. When it says Jesus is going to Capernaum, this is John's view. Here's Jesus' view. Jesus is totally chilling at the beach right? Jesus is just relaxing in a cabana with his disciples as John's suffering in the, heel, the, the sweat of the dungeons, right? So when these guys come up and they approach Jesus to ask him this question, Jesus is being found by the water, right? And they walk in, they say, Jesus, John wants to know, what the heck? Where, where have you been? Why aren't you helping him? He's losing hope, and I'm not going to tell him what we see here because this would discourage him even more than what's already going on. You see, because John is stuck in a dungeon, this dark, dim place, and he's only being fed because he's got friends who come to feed him. During this time, you weren't regularly fed by palace guards. You had to have somebody come and feed you or you would starve. And there was no trial. There was no court case. You were just left here until either you died or they needed your room pretty much or they decided to do something else with you. So John is suffering in this dungeon and he's got this time and he says, God, what is going on? God, I hear about all the great things that you're doing for other people, but what about me? I'm in this in the meantime moment. How are you going to intervene in my life? But this is what Jesus' response to these guys is. And it's so profound what he says here. Jesus responds to these guys, paraphrased, and he says this, I want you to tell him that I am the one. I want you to tell him about all the things that I am doing for everybody else. I want you to tell him about how people I've healed. I made the lame walk. I made the blind see. I've freed the prisoners. Well, maybe don't tell him that one. But I've set people free from their captivity. All of these things I have done for these other people. And you know, I think this is so true of us because when we're in these in the meantime moments, we hear about all the things that God's doing for everybody else. What about me? What about us? And this wrecks us on the inside. This is our life. You see, But the point that we miss with this is that Jesus says, I'm doing all these great things, but it still doesn't mean that I've forgotten you. It still doesn't mean that I've abandoned you or I've left you. I am still present in your life. But here's the fascinating thing as I'm wrapping this all up. After these guys leave, Jesus has this profound, important statement. And in scripture, he says this. He says, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Pretty much what he's saying here is that no matter if I answer your prayer or if I don't, no matter if I intervene or I don't, no matter if I change something or I don't, blessed is the person who still remains faithful, who does not falter whatsoever on account of me, because I am still working in your life. 
And this is so encouraging to me. When I look at these dark in the meantime moments of my life, that I can step back and I could say, God, you know what? I don't feel your presence. God, I don't feel that you're here. I need some kind of hope, something that just lets me know that you are there. And I read this verse, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. That's so true. And it's so powerful that we need to look at. And the reason I know this is because look at the story of John the Baptist and the stories of others all throughout scripture. God is a God who continually intervenes in the life of his children, regardless if you see it or if you feel it or not. He is always at work and he wants to help you because he's not angry with you. He's not apathetic and he's not absent from your life. He's vitally a part of everything that you do. So as we close out this service, something that is really important for me as we look at it is I know that we've kind of joked around here and there about all this, but you're in the meantime moments are dark and there's nothing funny about it. Maybe you're really legitimately struggling through something huge in your life that you don't know what to do. And maybe you're looking for just some kind of straw of hope, something that you can grasp onto to say, God, I still know that you are here. And I think that the best song that illustrates this comes from a song by All Sons and Donners, and it's called A Reason to Sing. And in it, it's got a line that says, I need a reason to sing. I need to know that you're still holding the whole world in your hands. See, when I hear that, I just get goosebumps because I think that is our cry in our lives, where we say, God, I need a reason to sing, I need a reason to know that you've got my world, my kids, my finances, my life, every last bit about me. I need to know that you have me in your hands. And I want to know that because I don't want to keep telling myself these lies. I don't want to keep going down this path. I want to get rescued off of this island. But in the meantime, what are you doing? This blessed is the person who does not stumble on account of me. And that's our challenge, to remain faithful no matter what, because God will always remain faithful to you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just praise and thank you so much for this time once again, God. God, we pray that you just continue to speak into our hearts. God, that you can let us know that we go through some dark and some troubling times because that is the world that we live in. God, we live in a world that likes to tear us down every step of the way, that tries to drown out your voice in our lives. And God, we've even become good at doing it ourselves. But God, I pray that you convict our hearts. God, that you transform us from the inside out, God, to give us a reason to sing because you are the reason that we sing. Because we would not be here without you, God. And we know that you are greater, more powerful, more awesome than anything this world can throw at us. God, let us feel your presence. God, let us not lose hope. Don't let us have our joy and our peace robbed, God. But fill us with you in every moment of our lives, whether it be dark or it be light. We love you, God. We give you this in your name. Amen.